must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Be afraid. Be very afraid. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? What's your favorite scary movie? You must first face your fears if you are to conquer them. The only thing to fear is fear himself. Hello, and welcome to Full Horror Show, the podcast where an animation nerd watches disturbing films while a movie buddy holds his hand. My name is Grant Letizia. And I'm Danny Clark. Here on Full Horror Show, we believe that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, even when it comes to movies. Take horror films, for instance. People seem to love them or hate them, and they'll stick to that mindset, sometimes for life. So is it possible to turn a non-horror movie watcher into a fan? Well, on this show, we're going to find out. Each episode, Danny leads me through a classic horror or spook-adjacent film, and we see what happens. Speaking long-term, either A, I'm going to become a braver person who can actually enjoy a scary movie, or B, I'm just going to piss my big boy pants and go back to watching Pixar movies. <laughs> so today on the show, wow, we've got a real humdinger, a real do-whammy. Uh, this is kind of a big one. Are those words? <laughs> it's The Exorcist, the 1973 movie by director William Friedkin, and it is a heavy hitter, I'd have to say. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's one that you've been sort of looking forward to, but almost not looking forward to, Danny. You would say? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on this one because it's a masterpiece, you know. Um, mm. And it's one that I had avoided for years, and it was really nice to revisit. So it's not a bad thing. I love it. It's just, it's a difficult film. For a lot of reasons you're feeling the weight of that word that you just threw around you threw around the word masterpiece Oof. i mean i said the same thing about evil dead when we talked about it a few weeks ago but that's just my opinion about evil dead this movie everyone regards as a masterpiece so when you're watching it or at least i'm watching it now i'm trying to think why is it considered to be that and mm. uh i have some thoughts excellent well i want to hear those thoughts um just a a little bit of quick um obligatory information about the film for those that don't know uh the film again as i said came out all the way back in 1973 uh directed by william Friedkin, stars ellen burson max von Sydow, and linda blair um, the budget originally was 12 million and then it grossed 193 million in its original release so that is quite a number uh, for back in those days. So obviously a huge, huge hit. Why does this film still matter in film history and history in general, in your opinion? Well, I mean, this movie is definitely on the top of every list. And so you ask yourself why. Um, William Friedkin had many amazing films. For me, The Exorcist, The French Connection, and Sorcerer are my favorite of his period. Um, Cruising is also great. There's others. But I think with The Exorcist, what I picked up on this time around was the cinematography is unbelievable. Every single shot is so iconic. Um, and we'll get into that. But, you know, the cover of the of the of the VHS was the exorcist walking up to the house with the light spilling on him, his silhouette. That shot is so iconic. Right. Um also, the shot of Linda Blair's character, Reagan, on the bed with uh, the statue behind her. Um, some of the shots of her with the makeup on when she when she levitates. And I'm not spoiling anything. I'm saying stuff that's probably in the trailer. You know, there's just a lot of iconic shots. So the cinematography is something that really stood out to me as, as just incredible. I also love the simplicity of it. Like, for some reason, when I remember this movie, I remember all the demon stuff. Of course, but I don't remember, 
I didn't remember the rest of it. I didn't remember the story of the exorcist himself. I didn't remember the story of, of, um, uh, Damien and of Max von Sydow's character. Um, I forgot that the beginning of the movie takes place in Northern Iraq. Um, so there's a lot to the story that I think makes it really complex. And Friedkin in his documentary, I watched it, it's called uh, Leap of Faith. Um, he talks a lot about faith and fate. And so, yeah, I think narratively, there's a lot of complexity. I think the cinematography is amazing. Uh, I think it's a really tight edit. Uh, it's kind of more of a chamber piece. And he even says this about his own movie. It's more of a chambers piece than a spectacle. What does he um, mean by chamber piece? He's talking about it as if like it's in a lot of interiors. So it's not it's not like a big cinemascope picture. It's not like Ben Hur, you know, it's not a spectacle, um, a chamber piece in that it's very intimate and it's a lot of dialogue and it's a lot of scenes inside inside this house. Um, I also liked how local it was to Washington, D.C. My sister lived in D.C. Uh, not too long ago. I spent some time up there and hung out in Georgetown. And my brother-in-law took me to the steps that are the famous steps from the film. I didn't even know we were going there. He was like, hey, I'm just going to walk you somewhere cool. And we're going to we're going to I'm going to see if you recognize it. And I didn't. I, <laughs> I just wasn't paying attention. And he's like, dude, those are the steps from The Exorcist. And I was like, oh, my God, no way. So I really liked how Georgetown was kind of a character. Those are some some minor thoughts on why I think it's uh, been regarded as a masterpiece. And it was nominated for those, all those Oscars. You know, I mean, it, granted, it lost a lot of them, but Friedkin had just won Best Director for The French Connection, I think two years prior. Um, and now he's nominated again. And it's one of like five horror movies nominated for Best Picture. So it's very rare that a horror movie is nominated like that. Based off then some of those interesting uh anecdotes, which I really like that you said about going maybe to the location and seeing the steps and other things. Tell us a little bit, I guess, about what what is your story with first seeing the film or even hearing about it? Like, what was your take on uh, the the hype surrounding this? So for me, uh, demonic possession and uh, religious horror was always the the scariest. Those were the ones that I avoided. The Omen, uh, The Exorcist, Anything that involved the devil or demons scared me because I grew up uh, in a religious family. We went to church. And so the idea that as a believer, for us, there is a hell. You know, they, they put the fear of God in us, <laughs> you know? So I don't really know where I stand now. Like my faith is very much in question and um, that's not, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but regardless I, th I think because it felt real to me, it felt like it was something that could actually happen. Now, I wasn't Catholic. I grew up Baptist, but um, it's very similar. I think that's really interesting that you said the angle about um, religious movies being something that you avoided because I didn't know we were actually that similar then in this. I think, you know, a little bit about the fact that I was raised evangelical Christian Similarly, I don't really subscribe to that viewpoint anymore, but in the same exact thread, demons weren't really allowed. Like it was acceptable if you were properly motivated to be scared of it, then they would use it. For instance, uh, they used to do these things. That I'm not sure if you ever participated in this before back in the day, man, but they had those things called hell houses. Yeah. And 
the whole point for anyone who obviously may not know what this is, it was like the Christian take on Haunted House. And they basically would just put a bunch of scary stuff in there. A lot of times it was very extreme, very ridiculous. But the whole point was to get you to be so afraid of the idea of going to hell or seeing something that was of the dark side that you would just run away from it completely. Uh, I was too scared to ever go into one. (laughs) So I was obviously so afraid. I wouldn't even go into the Christian version of a haunted house if that tells you how much I was terrified of these things. But the point is, I think that's the only time this kind of stuff would come up. A lot of the reason I think it was forbidden to watch movies like this was because of this strange idea that it would be by association. The assumption that if you watched or even saw something related to demonic activity, that it would result in dark forces, quote unquote, taking hold of you. Basically let the demon in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my grandfather, my grandfather was Pentecostal. And he used to come up to us and joke with the grandkids and put his hand on our head and say, I'm going to exercise the demon out of you, boy. And he was kind of joking, (laughs) but that is a real thing that I think stuck with me in kind of a traumatic way from when I was a kid. Now, let me go back up a minute because I do remember seeing this cover when I'd walk through Blockbuster, like we talked about with some of these other episodes. Um, And so I was always interested. I've always loved horror, so I've always wanted to watch it. I don't remember exactly when the first time was. It was definitely high school. I just can't remember exactly when. Um, But I remember it scaring the shit out of me. It was one of the few movies that actually did that. This time, and I probably have seen it twice since, like college and then once after and now again. This time it didn't scare me. This time it blew me away. This time I was just in awe of Friedkin and his hand on the craft. I've got a couple little anecdotes, but like one I will, I'll go ahead and say I thought was interesting is the score. He talked about how Bernard Herrmann was one of his favorite composers of all time in this documentary. And he went to Bernard Herrmann to ask him to score the movie. He took a rough cut to him. And Herrmann watches it and he says there's this organ in this town in England that he wants to use that has the most amazing sound. And Friedkin immediately said an organ, but that's so cliche. No, I don't want an organ. And he thanked him for his time and left. And he didn't use Bernard Herrmann. What he went with instead was a very abstract, strange score. If, if I don't know if you picked up on that, but it's not it's not necessarily definitive. There's moments when Ellen Bernstein's walking down the street and it comes on, you hear the electronic score. That's like the main theme. Okay. But that doesn't play throughout the movie. Instead, it's like screeching and strings and it builds and it doesn't necessarily have like a melody that you would remember or connect with. It builds an atmosphere of impending dread throughout the film. So yeah, this time when I watched, I don't think I, because I'm so now detached from religion and not paying attention to it as much. I don't think I thought about it as being real. I thought about it from the craft of a filmmaker and like the approach to making it, if that makes sense. Totally does. Yeah. You were able to set aside the emotional part of it now because it's not as personal and you don't have that kind of impending sense that something is going to happen bad because you're watching it. <laughs> well, it's interesting you, you say that because the emotional part for me this time was the battle with faith. And much like the, the main character, the, the main priest, um, it, it, he's struggling with his faith. And 
Like he sits at a bar and talks to another priest about how he feels he's losing his faith. And he's struggling in this relationship with his mother because he doesn't have time for her. And she's basically dying because of his priesthood, because of this life that he's chosen, that this lonely life of being a priest. And even in the moments when he's with Reagan, the demon calls him out on that. And I found that struggle to be very real and to and I empathize with his character. Also, now being a father, I had a hard time watching a 12-year-old girl be possessed and do these things to herself. And I think that was a little bit, that was disturbing the first time, of course, but it was more disturbing this time, I think, as a father. You had that benefit, I believe. <laughs> and obviously, I saw this movie for the very first time. And when we come back from the break, I'll talk about that specifically. But I just think it's interesting to note the differences in our viewing experiences because I think that the viewing experience I just had was more similar to what you were feeling when you were in high school. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> because the first run through, I, there's no way to avoid just the pure emotion of the whole thing. And then for me just to go one ticket, just one step back again to share some personal experience in this. I mean, obviously there, yeah, there's the context of religion and other things kind of weighing in and the different things that you're taught when you're growing up which may or may not stick around. And I think, interestingly, it might affect the movies that you choose to watch some more than others. You know, this this film was something that I was aware of because I knew that it was a movie about demon possession. Um, that was exclusively what I knew about it. I knew that it was it was it seemed like a very serious movie. It seemed like it was a very adult tone. And I, I having not seen it, I didn't know these things, but it's just sort of osmosis sort of bled through the culture. And I, I felt like well, if there's a movie about exorcism, it seems like this is the original one, not necessarily whether that's true or not. I don't know if it's predated by another exorcist kind of movie or a demon movie, but it seems as if to me uh, it was the one that sort of kicked it all off. So it was one that was very seminal in that in that way. And if I ever thought about the idea of, of demons, it's almost like I would picture that VHS cover because <laughs> I hadn't seen anything else. Um, and I would just think about the idea of what if you were a kid and you had something bad inside you that you couldn't control? And it seemed like a terrible idea. I was so scared of the dark when I was little that I would sit there in my bed, like, like a lot of kids, this isn't unusual, but you sit there and you look at a curtain and you imagine a face staring at back at you in the dark and you just think about things and you imagine stuff and it kind of just, it carries you away with it. And in some instances, I remember again, a little bit because of the way that we were instructed that, there were bad things in the dark, maybe even demons in the dark. And occasionally you had to try to tell them to go away. I tried that once. It did not work very well. I got more scared and then I ran. <laughs> From my experiences, again, being told that this was something that was actually real, something that really could happen to you. That's why that I avoided this movie almost exclusively. I'll also add to that a little bit more interesting later, even later in life. Um, when I was a bit older, I believe it was in college, there was a an individual that I ended up meeting and she had a very interesting story. She would claim very legibly and would explain pretty passionately that she had a period of her life where she was actually possessed by a demon. And I kind of responded to it the way I feel like you would, if you're sort of polite about these things, you kind of just go, Oh, oh, oh. yeah. And you sort <laughs> I mean, yeah. you don't, you, you don't want to make fun of it because you know, it's serious. So you listen and you ask questions and you you try to, you know, be empathetic as much as possible. But there definitely is that part of you that's going, whoa, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that information at all. And 
at the time I was already, um, I would say just, you know, exploring my own path and what I believe in everything. So it wasn't, it's not something that rocked my world, but it was still interesting because again, when it comes to things like this movie, it just makes me think about how this is a very real thing to many people. And, you know, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, poo poo that or anything. I think it's, I think it's, if that's part of your belief system, it's very valid. If that is what you believe, I just think it's interesting to grow up believing one thing, change, and then see how that affects the movies that you watch or don't watch. And in this case, is very, very appropriate. And I think that's actually true for both of us then. So that's really interesting. I think it speaks to our response to horror. And I think that the the fact that we grew up with this religious aspect to it, like I always, I like to ask people, do you believe in ghosts? And most people are going to say no. I, I actually kind of do. You know, it makes me feel better about the loss of my mother. The idea that maybe she is around sometimes, even if it's just spiritual or in my head, whatever. But if you grow up as a Christian believing in hell, then you believe in the devil and then you believe in demons. And so I'm not saying it is real, but how could it not be if that's what you believe? You you are you're programmed to think that that is true, right? And so it makes it so much more tangible. It makes it much so much more effective and disturbing as a film and as a subgenre of horror. And I think we kind of bring that baggage with us when we see a movie like this. Oh, 100%. There's, a, there's an intensity and a, and a ferocity to Friedkin's style with this film, especially when Max von Sydow shows up. I don't know, man. It, it, it hits a different nerve than Possession or than The Evil Dead. It's a really good question why it's regarded such a masterpiece. I think we're touching on it, you know, and we will more. But it it, it truly is something, it's something special, <laughs> you know? It's unbelievable as a film. Absolutely, it's definitely special. I mean, it has, like you said, all that history behind it, all that weight of being a masterpiece. And uh, we are actually going to talk more specifically about why it's such a well-regarded film and why it's lasted for so long. But we're going to break that down more specifically with spoilers after we come back from the break. Welcome back to Full Horror Show. We are actually talking about The Exorcist, the 1973 movie by William Friedkin, directing and why it's so significant and why it's still around and why it's still really damn scary after all these years. But before we go any further, though, we should drop this uh, spoiler warning in here so that people know that things will be spoiled after this point. So beware going forward. Listen to me very carefully. Look out! The spoilers are coming! If you see the spoiler and it tells you what the movie is before you watch the movie, everything will be ruined! The spoilers are there! Get down! Get down! Get your ass to Jamie! So Danny, I have a question for you right out the gate. What is the title of the movie referring to, in your opinion? Oh, well, it's about the exorcist himself. It's 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 about Max von Sydow. Uh, you know, I love how it opens with him in northern Iraq uh, as an archaeologist, basically, like uncovering this demon's head, this sculpture of a, of a demon head. Um, so it's about him and it's about the other priest, because at first uh, he attempts to be the exorcist, but he's not really trained in the way of doing it. And so he goes to other priests for help to find, uh, I guess his character's name is Marin. Um, 
So yeah, Damien Karras is, is our main character, but Max von Sydow is the exorcist. Mm. It's interesting because uh, the actual plot summary from INDB just says something very simple. It just says, when a teenage girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her daughter. And as you pointed out, though, the exorcist is funny to me as a title because we get introduced to the younger priest very early on. His story is interesting and unfolds throughout the whole thing. But Max von Sydow's character, while he shows up, as you mentioned, very early on in the beginning, doesn't show up again until basically the end of the thing. The very end. The very yeah. end. And they and they do the actual act of the exorcism. But that timeline was very surprising to me. I had no idea that he wasn't in it for a long time. So what did you think when the movie opened in northern Iraq? Because that's something I forgot happened. Like that whole opening sequence, especially because when I saw this, I hadn't seen Sorcerer. And Sorcerer takes place in, um, you know, a, a remote place, not remote place, but like a faraway land, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they actually shot this in Iraq. So I thought that was kind of cool. It reminded me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I thought I was watching Indiana Jones. Okay, so same page there. Yeah. It was yeah. weird. I was like, this is really strange. Why are they starting in here? What is this guy doing? Oh, is he like an archaeologist? He's digging for stuff? Cool. I was also very nervous when he was reaching in that dark hole in the beginning. I was like, someone's going to jump out of that hole and grab him. Someone's going to grab him. <laughs> Why did they start it in Iraq? What was the point of that? It was almost like uh, an extra scene. I, I didn't. I thought you said you had maybe some more information on why that was the way they chose to start it off or something. Well, in the documentary, um, Friedkin talks about it. And there's that shot of Max von Sydow looking at the statue. Um, they're like standing off at one another. And I think that that is foreshadowing the ultimate standoff at the end. And he has performed other exorcisms. That's uh uh, alluded to later in the film by the other priests when they're talking about him. They're like, where is he now? Like, oh, he's off, off on a dig. We, we, we can find him. He'll come back. And they send him the letter and they get him back. I think it's all, you even mentioned when he reaches his hand in the hole and you thought something was going to happen, that all creates this sense of impending dread. And it sets the stage for this, this character. And we want to know who he is. So we're naturally curious from the start. And I think by departing from him, and going to another man who is losing his faith and who is struggling with his faith and doesn't know how to help this girl and doesn't know what to do. I think it makes it so mysterious and I think it makes it so alluring, Yeah, you know, and it adds layers to it that I didn't even remember. Yeah, it was it had me scratching my head for sure. The whole, you know, whatever, 10 minutes when it that's unfolding, because I was thinking, am I am I going to see something where he's he's going to like. All right, he's obviously digging. He's going to find something. Like he's going to find uh he's going to find Jumanji. Uh, the the game, the board game is going to come out of the ground <laughs> and then <laughs> he's going to try to play the game. No, it just seemed like the perfect setup. I loved it. it it's so much Indiana Jones going on there with everything. And it, it's definitely subtle because he doesn't like Friedkin in the documentary names the demon that that is the sculpture. I don't remember what the name is right now, okay? Um, cause I didn't write it down. I wasn't paying enough attention to, to remember that, but I don't think it matters. I think we get, I think we get that it's a freaky statue that, <laughs> that it's, yeah, there's no connection though, just to be clear between the freaky little statue he pulls out what happens. Well, I mean, there is, we, we are in spoilers now. There is that shot later in the film when Linda Blair's hands are up and, and she's free of the, of the restraints on the bed and there's the smoke billowing behind her and the light behind her. And you see the image of the statue there next to her. And that is from the perspective of 
Max von Sydow's character. So it does connect back at the end of the film. Does he use the statue for good? No, I think the statue is evil. Yeah. Well, doesn't the dude say to him, though, like he has um, someone helping him. And doesn't he mention something about fighting evil with evil or some line like that? Yes, he does. Well, what does that mean? So so is he is he out? Is he like a treasure hunter, a uh, paranormal treasure hunter finding objects to use against the demons he doesn't ever pull it out though in the exorcism does he? i don't know about that i think he's i think he's just trying to learn more about uh maybe the worship of like why would someone make a statue of a demon perhaps it was pagan or at that time people worshipped it or or were afraid of it and so they were trying to honor it in some way I mean, it's thousands of years ago, thousands of years old. You know, I, th- I, th- I just think his curiosity is interesting. But when you're talking about fighting evil with evil, there is a line at the end of the film that Sidow says, because the, the priest, they both come out of the room and they're sitting on the steps. So Kara says, like, why is this happening? Why would why would this happen to a little girl? And Max says, the point is to make us despair, to see ourselves as animal, to reject the possibility that God would love us. That is entirely the demon's intent is to is to break you down and make you feel terrible about yourself i mean not only is he causing physical harm to the girl but the priest his mother ended up in a in a an asylum chained to a bed just like linda blair's character and he can't help her he has to leave and then he's drinking at home with a friend that night feeling sorry for himself that he can't do anything about it and so the demon takes advantage of that and brings it up and breaks him down to his most vulnerable. And that's when Max comes back in saying, don't listen to it. Stop. (laughs) You know, Um, by the way, one more little anecdote about Max. This I thought was really interesting from the documentary. Apparently, Friedkin didn't like his performance in that scene. He wanted him to be more intense. And Max said he couldn't do it. He had to play it more subtle. And Friedkin was like, but you you have to be more intense. Like, I need you to get angry. I need you to cast that demon out, <laughs> you know? And Max said, but I don't believe in God. And it kind of blew Friedkin's mind. So he goes back to Max and he goes, do I need to get Bergman here? Do I need to get Bergman to, to help you to do this? And Max is like, no, you don't need to get Bergman here. And Friedkin said, he's played religious characters in multiple Bergman films. Why can he not do it now? And the answer from the, I think it was the producer was all of those performances are subtle in the Bergman films. He's much more subdued. He's much more calm in Virgin spring and in seventh seal. It's emotional, but it's not the power of Christ compels you cast the demon out. He's yelling at her, throwing water at her. And there's just such an intensity to the performance. It's amazing that Friedkin got that out of him. I love it. That's really cool. Okay, so he wouldn't have naturally gone that far. Nice. And there were some very strange tactics by Friedkin in this movie. I don't know if you know these little tidbits, but um, apparently he slapped one of the actors in the face uh, after Karis falls down the steps. There's another priest character who runs over and is crying next to him. And apparently that guy couldn't get to the emotional place that Friedkin wanted him to. And he was saying, I just can't, I just can't do it. And so Friedkin slapped the shit out of him Wow! <laughs> and, and said action. Also, Friedkin knew that uh, John Ford used to bring guns to set. And apparently Friedkin would fire off a rifle during the shooting of the film to scare the actors. 
<laughs> to get them in the right headspace. Don't know how those things would actually play today. <laughs> I don't think. Well, he even admitted that he's like, I couldn't do that today. There's no way. Oh yeah. man! Wow. Yeah, we we kind of know a little bit about uh, freaking and um, some of his methods, and he definitely seems like an intense guy. I want to go back to one thing that you mentioned that I thought was actually a very good segue to this little segment that we're going to do next, because you mentioned something about the demon basically breaking you down and making you feel just terrible about yourself. Well, the next segment that we're going to do is called how disturbed is Grant? (laughs) Yeah. So tell me what you think about the movie, man. I want to know how you feel. Tell us. I feel burdened is how I feel. Ooh, I understand completely why this movie I think has the the place that it has in history. And I noticed the same stuff that you did and appreciated it, like the camera work and the compositions and the set design and the color and the special effects and just the performances and the pacing. All that is unbelievably top notch and amazing and really, really well done. So I think that's all warranted. Totally makes sense. But you know what? I don't really think I enjoyed watching this. Oh, really? Okay. So did you like the film? That's the thing is I I can, I think, understand why it's a great film in that sense and maybe considered one of the best horror films ever. But I don't know if I liked it or really enjoyed watching it. Okay. Because I, like I said, I the feeling I had afterwards, it just felt burdened. Um. And this is part of the experiment that we're that we're going through here is trying to figure out, you know, at a certain level, will these things drop away and will I eventually start enjoying these experiences? I got to just say for this one, a lot of it, though, being things that you already sort of touched on, especially in the first half of the show, was you talked about how unbelievably um, overwhelming and intense the tone is in this film. And I think that's true. And that's what got me for a lot of it throughout the whole Indiana Jones opening sequence throughout the whole setup where the mom is trying to diagnose her daughter and they're just having doctors look at her and there's the priest kind of running around trying to take care of his mom and other stuff. Everything felt so realistic and intense and heavy. And the more the demon things start ramping up while I, I, at a certain level, I wasn't jumping as much. I started off the whole movie being so tense. I had to sit down and actually think about it like this and think through what I was going to do for my, my basically my fear management plan. Uh, my fear management plan was this. I was going to watch it in the daytime so it wouldn't be night. And then I was I was actually eating some breakfast, just a little bit of a late breakfast. But I I've had to think about this and I was like, you know, it wasn't pea soup, was it? I was like, I think that there's like projectile barf in this movie. I wonder if I'm going to throw up. Maybe I shouldn't eat right now. Maybe I should just like <laughs> take a break. <laughs> Did that gross you out that much? Like it, was it that disturbing? The the puking stuff? No, it looked like ooze. That was actually quite comical. Well, it was like Campbell's pea soup, you know. If they had made it yellow, I think I would have really had a problem with it because I have a really bad gag reflex as well. From a color standpoint, I actually like that it was green, even even if it was like ridiculous. You it know? was so green, though. It looked like Ninja Turtles ooze. Seriously. Yeah, totally. Well, and that room kept getting colder and colder and colder. You know, he like put a refrigerator in there and like it was it was horrible conditions for the actors. Like the the breath was real. Like it was very cold Mm. in that room. Well, that was part one of the the fear management. Part two was um, I decided that I was going to uh, lay on the couch sort of in a, a nice resting incline position with a blanket over top of me <laughs> that I could quickly pull over my eyes if the moment was going to call for it. So I stayed there kind of rigid with my hands clasped over the blanket, sort of waiting for probably the first solid 
you know, 30, 35 minutes. I think at a certain level it did round off and I was like, oh, okay, I think this is maybe the spookiest that this movie is going to get. And so that in itself was sort of tolerable. Like there weren't a ton of jump scares. It wasn't something that was overwhelming just over and over like that, but it was more of a, the tone and then how realistic again, he was going with all this stuff. I think my end result at the end of it is I'm disturbed mostly because I feel just burdened and heavy after watching it. And I still had to ask myself the question of like, I just don't know if I'd watch this again. I don't see myself watching it for pleasure and being like, this was such a fun time. Yeah, that's kind of my my quick take on it. No, I mean, that totally makes makes sense, dude. And I feel the same way. Like I was that's why I said in the beginning, I was kind of dreading even talking about it because it is a very heavy film. It's it's a difficult film. It's not necessarily that scary anymore. And and I am desensitized, so I'm not trying to like, you know, downplay how it may have freaked you out. But like we talked about Evil Dead, there's certain set pieces that are extremely disturbing. Um, the masturbation scene is one that stands out that I think, especially at the time and even today, I mean, she's a 12 year old girl and the crucifix is is cutting her. It's awful. Why was so much of it? I have a question. Sorry, I don't jump in. But why was so much of it sexual? I don't get that. Was it for shock value? Why was everything that the demon did have to be like, oh, she's going to use bad words? Like, well, OK, because like the demon kept saying things like you motherfucker, cocksucker and stuff like that to them. Yeah, it was always like it was always like a sexual connotation kind of thing. I think because that's like ultimate evil. I think that Friedkin and the dialogue he, they did it in that way to make the demon more disturbing, especially for the time. Mm hmm. You know, most people don't talk like that, at least back then, um, and especially Catholics and especially Christians. I think that that makes it more evil. Also, I mean, look at the seven deadly sins. Lust is one of them. I think that sex and violence kind of go hand in hand, especially from a religious standpoint. And so you're going to disturb religious viewers. You're going to disturb people more if you make it more debaucherous, make it more, just make it more evil. I think it makes it more evil. There's a character actress from Johnny Guitar named... Melissa, or sorry, Mercedes McCambridge. Okay. She was also in Giant and Touch of Evil. So apparently Friedkin hired her to do the voice of the demon. When you watch the rough cut of Linda Blair, Linda Blair said all of those things. She said, you motherfucker. But she's like, you motherfucker. Like, it sounds like that, right? <laughs> Mercedes McCambridge demanded. She said she'd been an AA and she no longer drank. She's sober. She demanded that she'd have whiskey raw eggs, cigarettes, and two priests present <laughs> to do the voice of the demon. And so after what? she drank the whiskey and, and ate the eggs and smoked cigarettes, Friedkin said it was like she had six tones coming out of her voice to do that demon voice. <laughs> and it was, it was perfect. The way they mixed that with Linda Blair's voice. Mm -hmm. Also, he talked about subliminal audio and in the beginning, when Max von Sydow is uh, getting the statue of the head and like dusting it off, he put flies inside of a bottle and put a top on it and put a microphone next to it for a little sound that's mixed in. He also had screaming pigs mixed in with the sounds of the uh, of the demon. Earlier, you mentioned the dogs because there are some shots of dogs in the film. He, he's using subliminal imagery, subliminal sound. And he's messing with your head to also add to the atmosphere and tone. So going back to how it made you feel, that burden, I think all of that is intentional. 
And I think that the reaction of audiences at the time doesn't really change that much today, other than we can look at effects like the puking or maybe the head spinning and think like, okay, that's a little cheesy for today. Whereas back then, maybe it scared audiences more. It still looked really incredible. I was very happy to see the head turning around effect in context, surrounded by all the things that it should have been. I did know about how a head turns around because I had read about it. Because this is one of those movies where I was fine with a lot of it being spoiled in terms of not everything. I didn't actually know how it ended with him jumping out the window and stuff, which I thought was really brave and quite cool, actually. I thought that was a really nice arc for that character. What did you think about him taking the demon from her? That was kind of wild. But again, you know what? It goes sort of back to what we talked about in the first half of the show. I feel like this movie is... um intentionally or not it's almost like uh it's almost like a little bit of propaganda for everything that we talked about it's completely like if you talk to the demon and you face it and you say "Mm, take me or whatever then it's gonna do it and i just thought it was it was pretty neat that he got it to work because i was like oh he's it's not nothing's gonna happen dude even if you ask it directly but it totally did which is amazing because then he could jump out the window and save her from a a funny perspective i kind of wondered what the demon's ultimate plan was because it didn't seem like it was doing very well and <laughs> I wasn't sure, like, what, what's your end goal, dude? Like, you're in the girl. OK, but now are you going to just kill her? And then what do you, what happens then? Like, I guess it does make sense to jump to somebody else. He just I felt like he could have done it a lot of other times, maybe. But I'm not sure. Maybe you have to ask the demon. I don't know. I don't know that we can speak to a demon to find out its motivations <laughs> here. But I don't remember very many possession movies where demons jump bodies like that. So I thought it was an interesting choice and one that I forgot about. I, I remembered him dying, but I didn't remember how. Yeah. But that was an ultimate sacrifice. You know, Max is dead there next to him on the ground, I guess, from exhaustion. How exactly did he die? I don't know. That was also surprising to me. I, I He was taking all that medicine. You know, yeah, I guess he was kind of shaky, but I mean, he was he shows up in the very beginning, shows up towards the end, does this great thing. And then I was like, wow, it's anticlimactic. He's actually dead already. He's on the floor. Oh, that's it. He doesn't see it through. I mean, he also sacrifices himself, I guess, in the act of doing it. But it still was interesting that that was how the ending fully played out for me was was a surprise. So I didn't have that spoiled, which is interesting. But I did learn about a lot of other things in the movie, such as, like I said, the VFX and the head turning around. And obviously those things are marvelous. Like even if they're short, they're so good. I thought the levitation was really nice, too. When she lifts up and her eyes roll back in her head, that that shot is so cool. Yeah, the chair. I mean, the bed moving around. All these things are are just so, so well done and just very, very impressive. I thought a lot about the uh, design of the house and how interesting that was, how everything in it felt like a maze and how you had to go up the stairs. And everybody was always hanging out in the hallway in this kind of claustrophobic area. And I thought that was really interesting, a good choice of the the house because it feels like a maze and it feels like it's twisting and it feels very um, like it matches the the narrative and it matches kind of the feeling and the vibe of the movie. If it was some sort of open, wide, nice looking, bright place, it would feel very different. So I thought that was a good choice. I'm really glad you brought that up because Friedkin talked about the motif of ascension in the film. Um, it's a reference to Christianity and they all keep going up the stairs and they all keep, like even in the beginning of the film, Max is climbing a hill. So there's There's so many shots of people climbing the stairs, going back up to that room, going back up there, trying to keep their faith and trying to save this girl. And yeah, and even the shots outside of the stairs, there's stairs everywhere, (laughs) you know, is that what you think is the real subtext of the film? Like, what's the what's the real underlying point in your view of what Freak is trying to get at here? I think it's a battle of faith. 
You know, I think it's it's ultimately what you believe in and will evil win or will goodness prevail? I think it's the ultimate depiction of evil. I think that's why this film's so tough for me because like the story is very simple. A girl gets possessed. She lives in a house with her mother. She's an actress. There's a film within a film. They try to get doctors to help. They end up with some priests. The priests sacrifice themselves and save the girl. It's a pretty simple story, but there's so much complexity to it. And I think that the way you and I responded to it in the beginning, our our response to religious horror in general, the baggage we bring from our own religion, I think that it makes you look internal and question what you believe and why. And I think that to me, that's what I think Friedkin's getting at. For me, just having seen it, I'm almost still stuck in that initial place of, oh, that was heavy. And I just kind of didn't enjoy it. I mean, just being straight honest, you know, about it. It doesn't mean that I don't recommend it for anyone else to see, because I think you should try, obviously, and and see what your response is. I, I told you earlier, I think my response this time was so much to the craft of the filmmaking. Another part that Friedkin talks about in the documentary, and he loves to talk about this film, obviously. So this is uh, pretty out there. But he was talking about Rembrandt and paintings and the stuff that he's drawn to. And especially with Rembrandt, what Friedkin likes is that there's a lot of, of shots or close-ups, um, portraits of people where there's only light on their face and everything else around them is black. And in the documentary, they were cutting between those paintings and these shots of Karis and of Marin and of Linda Blair's character and of, of the mom of Ellen Bernstein's character. And it's just spot on, man. You can see the influence of, of art on him. And in the, in the music, you can see the influence of like Stravinsky. He has a, uh, an ear and an eye for, for art. And I think that this is the ultimate art house horror flick. And I think that that, that would be a reason to watch it a second time is what I'm getting at for you. I don't know that you will anytime soon, but if you do ever uh, go back to it, I'd recommend the And for anyone listening, I'd recommend the documentary along with the film because it just answers so many questions. It opens up so many more questions and it, it brings them a, a, a more appreciation for the film. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm the first to admit that I'm not always right about the movies that I watch. And you've heard me say that before, Danny, in the past that I'll, I'll see something and, you know, maybe off the, the first viewing, it just doesn't maybe hit you right. And sometimes you need to just go back and dig into it again, or at least just do a little bit of research. And then it's something that I think can definitely develop over time. But I, I agree with you totally. I think it's still a masterpiece either way. And he's definitely an artist performing at an extremely high level. So uh, much hats off, obviously, to to the team that made this, because that's incredible to make a film that can still sort of shake you that much. Uh that far down the line, I think it's fascinating to see. That's why I love watching these classics, because no matter how how old they are, it doesn't matter. It still hits you as something that's very fresh and new and different. And it doesn't take away, I think, the years don't take away one bit of the power of it. Absolutely. But now we're going to segue just slightly to something just a bit lighter before we uh, head out. And that is to have a little bit of a special guest in the show as a first time thing. Maybe this will be a recurring uh, guest. We don't really know, but we'll see. Uh but generally, we need to have, I think, just a tad bit of levity because, you know, we talk about some serious stuff sometimes in the show <laughs> and we need to kind of be reminded about what's truly important, which is uh, honestly just uh, 
silly things like, you know, scary movies that are coming out and what's uh, what's trending, basically. So to do this, we have um, our horror correspondent. He's a very, very well known. Uh, he almost needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyways. You know him, you love him. This is the classic Hollywood actor, Peter Lorre. Hello, everyone. I'm very glad to be a part of your small little show. And Danny, I'm especially <laughs> glad to speak to you. Good to speak to you, too. <laughs> good, good. Well, first of all, I wanted to just start off by saying that uh, I am a master of horror myself. Charlie Chaplin actually called me the greatest living actor. Did you know this, Danny? <laughs> you didn't, did you? I did not know You that. thought that the whole time all I was doing was playing Mr. Moto. Well, you're wrong. I actually believe very, very much in horror, Danny. So it's no surprise that I follow it even, even now. Yes. Don't ask how I do it, but I do it. Sheer force of will. That's how Danny. I wanted to drop in just to explain to all of you a little bit about an upcoming film that I thought you might like. It's based on H.P. Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep. Danny, have you heard about these? No, I haven't. It's called Suitable Flesh. Yes. Oh, I have heard about this. Yes, I have. It's going to premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. <laughs> Joe Lynch directs it. The tagline is, a psychiatrist becomes obsessed with one of her young clients with multiple personalities. <laughs> Danny, let me tell you this, Danny. This film has everything. It has nightmarish maelstroms, supernatural hysteria, gruesome deaths, unstoppable ancient curses, Danny. The blood. There's probably so much blood, Danny. <laughs> so I feel this is a film that will truly represent something spooky that everybody should check out. And Danny, while I have you, I actually have a question for you. It's very important. What's that? What are your top five horror movies? Well, Grant prepped me for this. Um, this is really hard, man. I tend to go for the classics. I'll just say them. I, this changes all the time too. So The Shining, oh, The Exorcist, yes. <laughs> The Evil Dead, Possession is now up there. And the fifth, I'm going to have to give a couple because I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a fifth, but then I'm going to give a couple little shout outs. So I think the fifth would be Hellraiser. And uh, the thing is right behind it along with Nightmare on Elm Street. Sir Danny, tell me, you enjoy the blood, yes? Yes. You enjoy it when things get a little messy. Yes. You're not like this other pansy over here. Uh, well, Peter, I've been very honest about the fact that I don't like scary movies. Yes, so. but it doesn't make me respect you. You see, I respect Danny <laughs> because he knows, he knows when to get a little crazy, right? But you know, I'm a little disappointed, I must say, Danny, because you do not mention any film that has me in it. Why? Why do you disappoint me so? Well, well, I'll have to watch some more. There are so many to choose from, Danny. All you have to do is look. There's my famous film, Mad Love. I play a crazy scientist who takes people's hands off, Danny, and puts them on someone else. How can you not enjoy this? You must. I think I like your performances in dramas better than, uh, than scary movies, to be honest with you. Oh. Maltese Falcon, Casablanca. Oh, I like the way you talk, man. It's great. Grant, you could really learn from this guy. Well, no, he's taught me a lot, so I do learn from him. He could stand to learn a little bit more, that's all I'm saying. Danny, one last thing, one last thing. Before I go, 
Do you have any bodies in your basement, Danny? I don't have a basement. Oh, I was trying to find some advice about what to do with mine. You see, I recently acquired a sort of exercise bike and I've been using it from home. But now I have no room because there are just too many bodies in the basement, Danny. If you find a way to uh, take care of that, you just let me know, okay? I, I will Maybe let you know. Maybe the next time I'm on the show. Okay. Then, uh, then you can give me some good advice about it. That sounds good. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye, Peter. I'll see you all later. Bye. Bye. <laughs> wasn't, Danny, wasn't that magical? That's so special. Yeah. Uh, only through the magic of, you know, Hollywood can we get someone like Peter Laurie on this show. It's pretty, it's pretty it, special. It's like you're Stuart Gordon. You reanimated him. Maybe we did. I don't know. I'm not really at liberty to describe exactly how that happens, but. I mean, it's great either way because, you know, we get to talk about your favorite movies, his his favorite movies. And obviously he's way more of a horror guy than I am. So, well, now now we need to know your top five favorite horror movies. I I can't formulate them. Yeah, there I don't has think. to be something. I mean, you know, even if of just the few you've seen with us uh, on the cast. All right. So if if I pick five that I have seen and again, it, I have to qualify because it it's, it's such a small amount. But I guess I guess I'd put Evil Dead up there. Because it was good and funny, and I like that. Um, the trouble is, a lot of them, yeah, a lot of them aren't really even deemed scary. I mean, I've seen, I've seen The Shining, so that's got to go up there. Um, those two, I think, would be at the top. What else? I mean, again, having not seen a bunch, it's hard for me. But I would say I'll give you those are my top two. Those are my top two, and I know those are pretty good movies to boot. So that's a, that's a safe choice. Well, I know we're trying to wrap up, but I will ask because I almost put this in my top five. Would you consider Eraserhead to be horror? And I have this question. Th this is more of a rhetorical question for the audience in general, because there are things that are disturbing that I consider to be horrific. But are they necessarily horror? I don't know. And that's one of your favorite movies ever. So I love Eraserhead and I almost put it in there. But then I thought, I think I need to stick to the genre. And while that's a cult film and it is disturbing. And it's Lynch. I don't know that it necessarily would just sit in the horror section at Blockbuster. So I'm trying to think about it like that, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, see, that I would say at this time, it probably doesn't fit. Um, right. But I mean, it's still that that's the thing, though. Does it really do we need to really, you know, keep horror constrained to or constrained to these limitations? Probably not, because then a lot of other movies that I think I've seen maybe could be considered horror and I'd have to list them. But for ones in the genre. Uh, I hope to expand it. Well, maybe that's a future segment. Uh, Eddie, Eddie Muller at TCM has a noir or not uh, little bit that he does. And it's very fun on Twitter, on film Twitter to hear people um, either criticize or disagree with him or agree or throw out like, what about this one? And he's like, I don't think it's noir, but you know, who knows? Yeah, maybe that could be something that we do. Um, well, that is a wrap then. Our show is produced and edited by me, uh, Grant Letizia. You can find us on Instagram at Full Horror Show. You can also visit us at fullhorrorshow.com where you can listen to all back episodes. If you have any feedback or have a recommendation for a movie that you think goes Full Horror Show, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at fullhorrorshow at gmail.com. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or just wherever you listen. So until next time, stay spooky, my friends. Thanks, Danny. Thank you.